Good morning. Let's begin by uh, reading this verse on the front of your handout. First Corinthians, or passage, I should say. First Corinthians 15, 1 to 3. And this will kind of uh, give us a little bit of a foundation for what we're going to look at today. First Corinthians 15, 1 to 3. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Alright, let's pray. Lord, we sing glory to Your name and to the name of the Son and to the name of the Spirit. And we praise You for who You are and we praise You for being our God and that we can be Your people. And we pray that You would help us to think carefully about the whole Gospel today and think about what we need to include in our presentation of the Gospel, uh, whether that be over multiple meetings with an unbeliever or whether that be uh, over just one period of time. We ask for Your help to think about these according to Your Word and to apply them to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last session, we looked at what the Gospel is not about. We took some time to think about styles and messages and methods of evangelism that are not founded on biblical principles. And by looking at what does not constitute faithful evangelism, we're able to make four positive statements last week about what does constitute faithful evangelism. First, we said faithful evangelism involves teaching the Gospel. It involves teaching the Gospel. Secondly, it requires the whole Gospel. We're not just picking and choosing parts of it like, hey, let's let's uh, just tell people about the hope of heaven. Uh, that's not the whole Gospel. We need to make sure that they understand everything, the, the sin and judgment that comes to them if they, they reject the Gospel. Uh, and so on. We'll talk about that more today. Third, faithful evangelism seeks true conversions which only the Holy Spirit can bring about. So our goal is not to you know, just get people to make professions of faith. We're looking for true conversions. And that means that we need to be faithful to the Gospel and let the Spirit do the work. And then fourth, faithful evangelism seeks God's glory and tells men of their utter dependence upon Him for salvation. So today, we want to focus on the positive side of that question. Last week, what the Gospel is not. This week, what the Gospel is. This is the heart of evangelism. What is the Gospel? What is the message of the Gospel? And as we've discussed before, it is important that we have a clear understanding of the Gospel and that we can communicate it effectively and simply. So, let's think about this. Let's just start. You help me with some ideas. What core beliefs do do you see as necessary in communicating when someone asks, what do you as a Christian believe? Last week we talked about some things that we shouldn't be answering when someone says that. You know, a lot of times we move to politics or to personal beliefs on ancillary issues in the Scriptures or something like that or how we raise our kids or, or all these different things. But what, what what do you see as the core to the Gospel? If a person comes to you and says, what do you as a Christian believe? What what do you include in that? Okay? So they have to believe something about Jesus. They have to know 
they have to believe the right thing about Jesus, in fact. Uh, but yes, that Jesus is the way. He is the only way. Alright? What else? What else do they need to know? Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So you have uh, a recognition of sin, a pointing to Jesus and His finished work, which is proven through the resurrection. And um, all right, anything else, Stacy? Right. Right. We can't see our sin properly apart from a proper understanding of the holiness of God, the the fact that God is the Creator. We'll talk about that here in a second. And there's one final thing that we're going to look at today, and that is, which I think is probably assumed in your answers, and that is just a response. That, that just because they understand who God is and what their sin means and what Jesus has done, that doesn't make them a Christian, Right? Lots of people understand those basic facts, but they actually have to respond. And so we're going to point them to, we talked about this this a little bit last week, that it's an urgent call that, that God has called you to do it, so you need to do it. And so um, that's the fourth thing. So um, in, in uh, the book, Tell the Truth, that we've been uh, drawing a lot of this information from, Will Metzger highlights four foundation stones that we're going to look at. God, man, Christ, and response. Okay, those are the ones that you just uh, included as well. So God, man, Christ, and response, and that will help us have a solid understanding. If you could think about those four when you're giving someone a presentation of the gospel, you can make sure that, that they understand each of those those areas. And again, uh, doesn't all have to happen at once. But if you want to give them a complete gospel presentation over a period of time, they need to understand these four things, these four foundation stones. Alright, so that means that whether you have a conversation with someone at a grocery store and it only takes 60 seconds, or if you have 60 minutes on an airplane or whatever, you can use this model to ensure that you've shared the gospel, that 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 God, a proper understanding of God is there, a proper understanding of man and sin, a proper understanding of Jesus, His life and work, and our necessary response. So the goal of this class is to see how these truths fit together like pieces of the same puzzle, that without each piece, the puzzle is incomplete. Because in the back of our minds, we should be asking, how does each foundation stone relate to the other? How does our understanding of God relate to our understanding of sin? How does our understanding of sin relate to our understanding of Jesus and what He did? And... um, so hopefully we will come away from this class with a better understanding of God's redemptive work, probably reminding you of things you already know, but but um, just just a helpful way to, to to think about it and make sure that we include the whole gospel. And we are going to focus on um, the, the overall picture today, but what I want you to recognize is that on your handout there are lots of verses and passages that you can use if you want to take someone and show them about this specific item that we're going to look at. Uh, So for God, you can take him to Isaiah 6 and show him how 
God was high and lifted up and, and Isaiah was... I mean, you could show them man's, man and his sin there from Isaiah 6 as well. But there's some passages that you can look at. And the reason that we point people to the Scriptures, we don't just tell them these facts, but we point them to the Scripture is because we believe that the Spirit is the one who actually does the work of transformation. It's the, it's the Spirit who actually brings about life and life can only come through the power of the Word itself. And so, um, we won't have time to look at all these passages today, but they are there for your benefit. Alright, so first, God, the sovereign and personal Creator, the holy and loving Creator. Okay, There's two, two parts of God and His character that we want to consider when we are sharing the Gospel with people. First, God is the sovereign Creator. In Genesis 1, the, the story of creation begins with God. Right? And that God created the heavens and the earth. And as we continue to read, we also learn that God is not just the Creator who creates His, His people and, and this universe and so on, and then He just lets it go, but He is actually the sovereign Creator, the one who rules over. In Genesis uh, 1.27, He gives them responsibilities. In Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. He not only is sovereign over all, not only is he the creator, but he is the one who sustains us. In Genesis 1, and 29, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And, he, and then he tells them what he provides for them so that they can actually carry this out. I give you every living seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they are yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. So, again, God is not just the sovereign Creator, but He is the sustainer. He is the one who provides for us what we need in order to carry out what He asks us to God had placed man in the in the garden and sustained him by giving him everything he needed. And implicit in this command that he gives to Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the truth that God is the Creator and the Sustainer and that He knows what is best for man. Right? He can give them instructions and prohibitions in order to show them, hey, I am the one. You just keep looking to Me. Don't worry about that knowledge of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that will make you wise, as Satan would say to them. Um, just keep looking to me. And, and implied in that is that God is the provider. God is the sustainer. Well, in considering that God not only creates but sustains His creation, what does this tell us about God? That, that God is someone that, yes, He does create, but He also sustains. What does that tell us about God? Does it not speak to His love and His goodness and His uh, the fact that He is a provider. What we learn from God's sustaining is that He does, in fact, love His creation. Um, it shows that God is a personal God. And that's the, thing, the second thing that we need to, to um, I think, emphasize when we're talking to people about the Gospel. Uh, that not only is God the sovereign Creator, sometimes we think of God as a sovereign Creator, and I think rightfully so, we think of Him as far above His creation. He is over all. But, but what we cannot miss is that God is also near to His creation. That He is both um, 
what uh, theologians call transcendent, far above His creation. Nothing even comes close to matching His greatness. But He's also imminent. That is, He is near. And uh, that's seen clearly, as we'll see, in the person of Jesus Christ. That He sends Jesus to come to the earth. This is God. Remember, Emmanuel means what? God is with us. right? So, So, God is the personal Creator. He's not an impersonal force like the, you know, a lot of the founding fathers of our country believed in. They 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 were deists, which thought that God was the creator, but he just kind of, uh, kind of put the world in motion and then let it go and kind of backed off. And now he doesn't really care about any of his creation. Well, that's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. God is a personal God, and he. Um, shows how careful he is with uh even in the act of creation, right? As he's he's speaking into existence all these things. We talked about this on Wednesday night, but he's speaking into existence all these things, then he comes to man and what does he do? How does he make man, right? Breathes into his night. He forms him from the dust of the ground and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And with woman he, he has his hands in there, so to speak. Obviously God is spirit, so it's not his literal hands, but but for us to to get a picture here, God is personal. He is personally involved in the the creation, primarily of mankind. And so, uh, so I think that's a way in which we see God underscoring that truth that He is not only transcendent, but He is imminent. He is close. And I think that's important to uh, that it's important to clarify that in the Old Testament, God is presented as the sustainer. And in the New Testament, God is made visible in Christ. As Colossians 1 says, that He holds all things together by the word of His power. That is Jesus. And that that tells us that the triune God is actively involved in the sustenance or the sustaining of all of creation. And this is one point in which Christianity differs from many other religions in the world. That Christians have a relationship with a personal God, right? That God is is near and that God loves to have a relationship. He loves to be called their God and for them to be called His people. So God is a sovereign Creator who sustains us that out of His pleasure and His freedom, God created and sustained us. And therefore, that makes us... Here's what we want to, to, to impress upon the non-believer. That makes us as... His creation, utterly dependent upon Him for everything that we have. That we are not entitled to anything from God. We have no inherited rights. God is light and purity and holiness. He is the Creator of heaven and earth, and therefore He sets the standard for what is right and what is wrong. He is the ruler. He is the sovereign. That's what we mean by sovereign. That He is the ruler, the one who rules. And secondly, God is personal. We are neither impersonal machines nor animals. God did not make us into robots and He did not just um, let us go to our own way. And our significance is derived from His unique position. uh, Or our unique position, I should say, of God making us in His image. And the purpose for which we are made is to, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we are to 
worship Him and honor Him and fellowship with Him and to delight in Him. He is our God. He is, he is the, uh, the Maker of all creatures. And our, the reason that we were made was to worship Him. All right, So that's, that's what we need to impress upon people that God is our ruler. He has absolute claim on our lives as sovereign and personal creator. Any questions on that first foundation stone? Anything that you might like to, to add to that or maybe emphasize about God other than those things? Bill. Yeah. Right. Yep, that's uh, that's that's a good thing to point out. Uh, and some of the, sometimes the best way to point that out to people is by asking a question. You know, can you think of, you know, what about your religion? Who who are you serving? You know, who who do you who do you worship? And um, and then um, and then show them from the scriptures that we serve a a living Savior. And obviously that's all a part of the third point that we're going to look at, which is Jesus, that He is the sin-bearer. He is the, he, he is the one who, who came on our behalf, and He's the one who now lives, that he, he did not stay dead, but now is alive. All right, second, man or sin, we could say, man or sin. Um, if we're going to understand our need properly, then we need to think about ourselves. Okay, we, we first think about God in order to think properly about ourselves, and then we think about ourselves in relationship to God. And that's why we should be asking connections, like what is the connection between man and God? Um, and Stacy brought this out when she said, you know, we can't understand ourselves properly if we don't understand God. And that's really where it starts. It has to start with God, not with their perceived needs. You know, I, I have these health problems, like we talked about last week. I have these health problems. I got these financial problems. Well, hey... God can come and He can heal all those things. And that's true, but it's not the whole truth, right? And we said last week, we quoted from C.S. Lewis, that a half-truth masqueraded as a whole truth is an untruth. Okay, So we don't want to impress upon people that they're going to have all their, their problems solved. You know, Jesus is the answer. That, that's true, but, but that's not very helpful because what is the answer to? They need to know that. If it's the answer to every single one of my problems, that's not actually true. Now, can it give you perspective in all your problems? Absolutely, uh, knowing that Jesus is is the answer. But but we want to we want to be clear about this. So so what is sin? How does sin relate to us in our relationship with God? If we are created to worship God and we are not worshiping God, then that tells us something. And the Gospel challenges us with this question that people need to understand. What is man? Uh, we have to vividly show people the contrast of what they are meant to be, as Genesis 2 and 3 talk about, and, and what they have become instead. Right? Uh, in Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, man goes his own way. And he, he wants to serve the creature rather than the Creator. And God gives them over to the lust of their minds so they can carry out the desires of their flesh. And so we must 
help them to see, we must help the non-believer to see that um, that man is has not met up to the standard that God has set. Remember, we said God is the sovereign ruler. He has the right to set the standard between right and wrong. Now, how do we meet up to that? And there are lots of good ways to help people to see this. Um, and the first one that comes to mind is one that's you know where people have have done in the past where they've taken the Ten Commandments and said. You know, have you broken any of these commands? You just go down through them one by one. You know, have you ever lied? Have you ever have you ever um, had an immoral thought? Have you ever hated someone, and so on? And then uh, show them that they haven't met up to God's standard. Uh, and in this, we don't want to uh, we don't want to guilt them. Okay, that's that's the job of the Holy Spirit. We we tell them the facts and then let the Holy Spirit. Um, let the Holy Spirit use the guilt to draw them to to Himself. But, um, but, but they do need to recognize their sin. For example, a person might clearly understand a holy Creator God and he might understand the difference between right and wrong, but still not recognize the depths of his or her sin and rebellion against God. And that's what we want them to see. Uh, because they're never going to make sense of this third part this third foundation stone, which is Jesus. They're not going to make sense of Jesus and their necessary response if they don't understand the second one in relationship to God. If they don't understand the depth of their sin. From the most devout atheist to the most devout Muslim, their high view of man will always blind them from the true state of their depraved hearts. Right? It doesn't matter who you come in contact with, if they don't understand that they are they ought to have a low view of man and his ability based on what the Scriptures teach. They will walk away with the same depraved hearts that they came with. They will be blinded. They need to recognize the great weight of their sin and what Christ can do as we'll talk about. So so what should we do? I, I think we need to be spiritual doctors. And we use the Scriptures to help diagnose their problems. We want to show them their need and expose the sinful character of their sin and help them to see if you continue on this path that you go, then this is where it's going to lead. Help them to see the great judgment that's coming upon all man. That's why Jesus talked about hell so much. Because He wanted people to recognize the great depth of their sin. People in spiritual poverty and darkness and really, spiritual death, they need to be shocked to life. Okay, so unbelievers must see themselves as guilty rebels under judgment and unable to save themselves. And one of the best ways to communicate that is by providing them with a living example. Use yourself as an example of what Christ did for you, what you were like. You know, that, that you were a, a rebel against God. And don't minimize your... Um, conversion even if you were saved at a young age. Okay? Don't think that you weren't a rebel before you came to Christ, even if you got saved at the age of five. Okay? Because God did save you from yourself and from your own sin and from a life of potential sin. Right? Uh, so help them to see that because that actually helps. You don't have to be saved out of a life of alcohol and drugs in order to be able to share your own testimony with a person. Uh, you need to you need to help them to see that hey I was a rebel against God I lived in a good home even okay if that's you 
I lived in a good home and I, I had all the right morals. But I was a rebel against God. I had opposed Him. And I deserved His full and just judgment. But God sent Jesus to die for me. Um, so in your handout, you see the main points that, that we want to to consider. Uh, we need to communicate what sin is. It is willful rebellion against God. Okay, don't minimize this point. It is willful rebellion against God. It's not just some oh, a little mistake and God just kind of sweeps it under the rug. No, it is standing against the holy God. It is defying the greatest ruler that there is. Okay, so uh, I've used the example before that it's one thing to defy the mayor of a city. It's another thing to defy the governor of a state. It's a completely different thing to defy the president of the United States. Or we could say it's it's one thing to um, to to uh, to assault a mayor or assault a governor, but it's another thing to assault the president of the United States. And that's what we've done against God. Okay, we, he's, he is the highest authority. And all of our sins, because He is completely holy, is a full-on assault against God. We're saying, God, You made us, but we're not going to obey You. You see, from the very beginning, God says, uh, He says something, and the creation obeys. Let there be light, and there was light, and so on. It goes on and on. All through chapter 2 of Genesis, we have God saying something, and it happens. And then, in chapter 3, He says something, and it doesn't happen. Adam and Eve say, uh, no, we are going to eat from that tree. And so, uh, um, it's hard to, to, to think about this in a way that would be helpful, but, but I've heard the illustration of someone, you know, if you made a little clay model, a little clay city out of clay, and you had all these characters and they kind of came to life, and um, you kind of told them what to do and where to, where to go, and then all of a sudden one day the clay model says to you, no, I... I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I want to do it my way. Be like, wait, wait a second. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who keeps you moving. Okay, kind of a, a silly illustration, but but that's what it's like in in a sense with how God must feel when we sin against Him. And so they need to recognize that 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 they can't run their lives as if God does not matter. They cannot ignore God. They cannot be sufficient apart from God. They cannot um, disregard His law and expect to receive no consequences. All right. So, how do you respond to someone? Let's just uh, just do a little bit of a um, back and forth here. How do you respond to someone if you're witnessing to them and they say, "You know, I'm not rebelling against God. Uh, I'm I'm not perfect, but I'm not consciously." Re- rebelling against God. How, how do you respond to them? Based on what you know about sin, how do you respond to someone that says, I, I don't, I, I'm not rebelling against God? Phil? Yeah. Right. Right. And so you're calling God a liar. Where where does he say that that all men are sinners? 
There you go. So show them again back to the scriptures. Let the Spirit do the work. Let them see that for themselves. This is not me saying, hey, I got a good idea about how you should get your life right. This is what God says about you. Okay? And, and, uh, and you need to recognize that. Romans 5.12 and 5.18 clearly say that sin entered the world through Adam's one sin and that his sin made us guilty of sin before God. And so we understand these verses to mean that, that we are sinners by nature and by choice. No one forces us to sin, but we do have sin in our nature. Um, and so, maybe we don't consciously say, you know, God, I hate you. I'm rebelling against your plan for my life. But we need them to see that, that rebellion is simply a part of who we are by nature. That we have turned our own way. Isaiah 53, that all of His sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him, this is the part where Jesus comes in, the iniquity of us all. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Impress that upon them. Help them to know the weight of their sin. We need to communicate what the consequences of sin are as well. This is the second part. Not only do we need to com- communicate that sin is willful rebellion against God, but we also need to help them to see that uh, willful rebellion against God means serious and eternal consequences. It means physical and spiritual death and, uh, and eternal death and, and eternal death from God forever. We are all self-deceived if we think we are living out of our own resources when actually as His creatures, we are guilty rebels under His judgment who cannot help ourselves. And so we have chosen to reject God and we need to impress that about, uh, upon them. So if you were talking with someone and you got to this point, you want them to, to, to go away with two ideas. First, God demands punishment of our sins. And secondly, we can do nothing to avoid that punishment. God demands punishment for our sins and we can do nothing to avoid that punishment. Is that true? I mean, we can't do anything. It's something that God has to do in us. Francis Schaeffer um, was asked one, uh, once what he would tell a man if he met him on a train and he only had an hour to talk to him about the Gospel. And he said, I've said it over and over again, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative, on the sin part, to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead. Then i take the last 10 to 15 minutes to preach the Gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic, he goes on to say, and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt feelings in the presence of God. So, for example, if you had an obstinate patient and you were a doctor and you knew that they had a serious diagnosis and if they didn't correct this problem or have it corrected, then they would, uh, they would die very quickly. How would you spend your time speaking to them about what they are blinded to? They don't want to hear that they have stage 3 cancer. So, your job is not to, hey, let me tell you all the benefits of living a cancer-free life. Hey, that should be part of it. Uh, but a lot of your time is going to be spent with someone who is, who is obstinate 
to that idea is going to be spent talking to them about the seriousness of having cancer in your body and the consequences of what happens if they don't remove it. Right? And so, um, I would I would suggest that when you talk to people, um, <clears throat> certainly we need to highlight Christ. And but But I think what's happened in our prosperity gospel type um, culture that we've moved into now is we've highlighted all the good things and we've neglected the bad things. People don't understand how good they really are because they haven't seen how bad they as individuals really are. They don't see how good Jesus is because they don't recognize the weight of their sin and that it means an eternal hell. And that's why you find Jesus talking so much about hell and and very little time talking about or in comparison, I should say, uh, less time talking about himself and the benefits of eternal life. He talks about hell much more than any other topic. Uh, maybe save money. Money and hell, those are the two big ones. But but both of those are tied to sin because if we love that money and if we don't get away from the fact that that's not actually what sustains us, then we're not going to recognize the great hope of the Gospel. Now, I think Francis Schaeffer... He makes an unhelpful distinction by saying, I would speak to them about sin for 45 minutes and then I'd share the Gospel. What I would say is, talking to them about sin is part of the Gospel. Talking to them about their condition and their, the consequences that come is part of the Gospel. Help them to see that. Any questions on this third, second foundation stone, man and his sinful nature? Paul? Pardon me? Yeah, but how could you commit unwillful rebellion? So, so I, I, I think willful is probably redundant there. In other words, we could just say sin is rebellion against God, and I would say all rebellion is willful rebellion. I don't see how you could have unwillful rebellion. I, could, I, I see what you're saying, that, that maybe they're not clear that it is rebellion. But I would say that it's still willful rebellion because Romans 1 says that everyone knows that there is a God. Everyone knows that. So if they know that, then they are defying Him by going about their life living as if He doesn't exist. So, um, alright, third, Christ. Third foundation stone, Christ the merciful Redeemer. Three things we want to impress. That Christ is the teacher, the sin-bearer, and the king. What everyone needs is regeneration. We need a new heart. Once we've helped people to see the true nature of their sickness, then we need to help them to see that there is only one cure. There's not many ways to the mountain of salvation, to the top of the mountain. You know, you can fly there, you can climb it, you can, you know, get a uh, whatever those things are that carry you up to the top of the mountain. Um, there's only one way. Okay, there's no other religion holds the radical view of sin that the Bible teaches and therefore um, not only is their sin radical but the offer of salvation is also radical. If we're going to present the whole Gospel in a, in, a, in a way that will help, we must present the whole Christ in all His roles. And so uh, we want to think about them in three primary ways. First, that He is teacher. Christ's words and life reveal the nature and person of God. This is the the premier thing about Christ that that we learn that He comes to be our teacher.
teacher. He is the exact representation of God. You want to know who God is, Hebrews 1 says, then look at Christ. Um, he is the exact representation of God. I think that's chapter 1 in Hebrews verse 3. And so when He comes, He not only comes in the way that He lives, but in all that He says, how He acts, He communicates to us uh, who God is and what He demands, and so we are to submit to His authority as our teacher. Secondly, He is our sin-bearer. He offered Himself as an innocent substitutionary sacrifice for sin on behalf of all who acknowledge their sin. He took the guilt of sinners upon Himself and endured God's judgment for it in His death on the cross. So we... We build up this idea of who God is. That He is our Creator. He, he owns us. He rules over us. And yet, we've rejected Him. We've rebelled against Him. We've, we have defied Him. And so, now we see our, our great condition. And now, we, we point to them that Jesus has come to be our sin-bearer. That, that He is the only way that we can have our sins forgiven. The only way that we can have atonement for our sins. And... Um, and I can't stress enough how important it is that Christ took upon Himself the judgment and the penalty for our sins. That He is, and these two words are big, but if you understand them, you don't have to use these when you're talking to unbelievers, but substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary. He substituted us. He stood in our place. He died in our place. And atonement is that He paid for uh, our sin. He, he paid the full penalty that was due as a result of our sin. And He took our debt and He paid it in full. He didn't take our debt and pay it in half and say, now do some good works and you'll get the rest of the way. He paid it in full. So He bore our sin and then uh, we know that that was accepted by God because of what? Why do we know that, that, that Christ's sacrifice of sin was an acceptable offering to God. How do we know that? The resurrection. Okay, that is the proof that God accepted His sacrifice of sin. And so, thirdly, as King, He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. Right? Death no longer has a sting. It's for, for believers, it has no sting for us. There's nothing to fear about death because death is gain, as, as Paul says, right? His life of perfect obedience was vindicated at His resurrection. and He freely, sovereignly rules over us as His reward of righteousness to, um, are from God. He, he dispenses grace to whomever He chooses and He rules in love over all creation. So what we have here is God's design for man to worship Him, to serve Him, and yet we've rejected that design. We've gone against it and now Jesus is bringing us back to that design where He will lovingly rule over us as His people. And that's the way it ought to be and He can only, or, or we can only have that if he, he has forgiven our sins completely. He, he provides, here's a, a, a key word that will be helpful for you. Is he provides reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's why you have the passage down there, Romans 3 through 6. Right, we have been justified with Christ. Uh, therefore, having been justified with God, we now have peace through God in Jesus Christ. Romans five, one. And since we have been justified, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? For if, when we were God's enemies, this is Romans five nine through eleven, 
we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay? There, there was a gulf fixed between us and God because of our sin. And there was nothing that we could do to span that gulf. We needed the cross to span that gulf uh, effectively. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's our third foundation stone. People need to recognize who Christ is. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Or if they understand all that, they haven't been saved. Okay? Because I think the I, I think demons believe all those things to be true. That God is the sovereign creator, that man is sinful, and that that um and that Christ is the sovereign and the substitutionary atonement for sin. But there's something more that's needed. They need to respond. Okay, and, and response comes by way of what the Scriptures talk about. You don't have to use these words again because sometimes when we use words with non-believers, we just assume they know what they mean, but they probably don't. Okay, so repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. So that's why we have here on your handout, turn from your sin, turning from our rebellion, and then faith. Uh, we'll need to explain this, and, and I'll get to that in just a second. Okay, but first, repentance. If we're going to see someone respond properly, we need to give them the clear and urgent call to come to saving faith. That, yes, it is the work of God that brings a person to Christ, but He doesn't bring anyone to Christ without them responding in repentance and faith. Is that true? And it is true. That no one can come to Him unless the Father draws Him. That's true. But no one can come to Him also if they do not believe. Right? Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, so, so there has to be both of those things. It doesn't mean that they contribute to the work. It's really, if you think about it, that's why we call it a response. It's a response to what God has done. He has made it clear that He is the sovereign ruler, that we have sinned, and that Jesus is the answer to their sin problem. And then the proper response when God starts that work in them, when He gives them spiritual life, the necessary response is repentance and faith. So first, repentance. Turn from our rebellion. Turn to Christ as our Lord with our whole selves, mind, will, and emotions. Or mind, emotions, and will. Okay, That means with our minds. We need to agree that we have wronged Him. That, that we have wronged God and deserve His judgment. Realize that that His goodness has been shown to us in many ways and that it is designed to humble us and bring us to repentance. Okay, that is turning to sin, from sin to God in our minds. But also in our emotions, we need to despise our sin, recognize that our sin is what's weighing us down and, and that, that um, we need to have that removed. And then with our wills, we need to determine with the help of the Holy Spirit to turn from our rebellion and serve as Creator and Redeemer. Um, so, when you think of repentance, think of a 180 degree turn. So, you're going down one way, one path, and you just turn around completely from sin to God. I'm not going to follow my sin. I'm not going to follow my own pleasures and lusts. I'm going to follow after God and the pleasures that come from that. Alright, so, repentance. And then secondly, faith. 
That we need to trust in nothing we can do, but only in the finished work of Christ as Savior with our mind, emotions, and wills. And here, here's how McCune puts it. Dr. McCune puts it in his uh, systematic theology notes. He includes all three of those aspects if you look at this definition. Faith is a, re- a belief in, an assent to, and an unreserved trust in the finished work of Christ as the only means for our salvation. The belief in and the assent to are what the demons do. That's what James 2 talks about. That even the demons believe and what? And they shudder. That's the emotional part. They believe and they shudder. But they haven't done the third part, which is an unreserved trust in the finished work. Now, clearly, um, James's point is not that if they did that, they actually could come to saving faith. Jesus didn't die for demons. But the point is that even someone evil, like a demon, can do those first two parts. What we need to impress upon them is that they need to do all three. That they need to believe what Jesus did, that He did die and He was resurrected and He's now ascended. And they need to shudder at that fact that, that God is the Holy Creator and that He has provided a way for sins to be paid. And then we need to put an unreserved trust in this finished work. And the way that that's going to show up, obviously, is through obedience. Obedience first to accepting the Gospel call that yes, I will accept Jesus. I, I will, uh, I, I will, um, I, I will turn from my sins with the help of God, and and uh, turn to faith. This is the work of redemption. This is the the whole message of salvation. That that God is the Creator and the Sustainer of all, and yet even though He created us, we have turned from Him, and we needed. We need someone to take the judgment that we deserved in our place. And so, we take on the robes of Christ at the cross. And Christ takes our robes, okay, the, the robes of sin and, and guilt and shame. He, he paid for those in our place. He took them upon His shoulders. And, um, and the response is that we ought to turn to Him in saving faith. Alright? Any questions or comments? on the Gospel. We'll try to unpack this, get a little bit more practical next week by looking at a track that I, I found helpful and uh, one that, you know, you don't have to remember all these things, but it would be helpful, certainly. And that's why we have those little tracks. Those are just tools for us to use while we're helping someone through the Gospel. Alright, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for impressing all of these things upon us and thank You for expounding upon uh, helping us to expound upon these things as we've gone throughout our Christian life. We we understand more clearly all four of these foundation stones uh, more clearly than when we first believed. But we're grateful that You are still uh, working on us and that You're still refining us and changing us. And we pray that You continue to to do so in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.